a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hello there and welcome to the show. Once again, I'm glad to welcome you to another expedition deep into the heart of wrong think. We got a lot of territory to cover. Let me start by thanking my sponsors who make this show possible. And they include great and notable sponsors like HSL Ammunition. That's uh, my friend Spencer Worthington down there in St. George. I'll tell you what, through the ammo shortage of 2020, 2021, that is a guy who has kept things going, not just for the sake of his customers, who it turns out are very numerous and all across the country, but also for the sake of his employees and his community. What a great guy. What a great company. Our thanks to MonticelloCollege.org. Our thanks to Pure-Light.com. And a special thank you to the Heather Turner team, at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George. I appreciate them being sponsors of the program today. Let's jump right in. Seems like as good a time as any to talk about free speech. And I guess one of the biggest tests of whether we are truly committed to not just freedom of speech, but I'll say freedom in general, is whether we speak up when we see someone else being abused. And in fact, let me make it even just a little bit more difficult. Okay, here's, here's an added level of difficulty. A test of your commitment, your individual commitment to freedom, comes when you see someone being abused with whom you strongly disagree. Oh, yeah. I know, it's, it's tempting when I say, well, you know, it just serves them right. Ha! They're getting exactly what they deserve. Good and hard. And I don't want to make you feel guilty because I've been guilty of this myself at times as well. But that's not an appropriate response. Case in point, Tucker Carlson is is catching a lot of heat right now. Um, He has been one of the people who has very openly questioned the narrative. Now, this doesn't mean he's infallible and therefore every word he says you can hang your hat on. I mean, he, he could still make a mistake, but generally he is willing to tackle subjects and tackle topics that uh, other mainstream hosts won't. And so he gets attacked. But the disturbing revelation a couple of weeks ago from a whistleblower within the national security community that, hey, Tucker, don't know if you knew this, but uh, the NSA is actually spying on your emails. Now that is a little bit uh, creepy and not just spying on his emails, but actually sharing his emails throughout the Washington DC apparatus. In other words, throughout government circles, and then apparently releasing those emails to the media, much of which is, uh, I would say ideologically aligned against Tucker Carlson. Now, look, there's a lot of melodrama going on at any time in Washington, DC, And I'm not encouraging everybody, you know what you ought to do is get right in the middle of it. (laughs) Just jump right in with both feet. Most of it is exactly that. It's it's melodrama. But in this case, it was very interesting to see. And I I mostly caught this on, on my daily forays through Twitter. 
that uh, Tucker Carlson was being accused of, well, he's being paranoid. He's making this up. He is just, you know, playing the victim. Oh, the NSA is spying on me. And then the NSA bizarrely came out with a denial. Except in typical weasel word language, it wasn't really a denial so much as a deflection, a distraction. Yeah, I mean, they leave it to the people who do secret things in the middle of the night that you can't know about to uh, to fudge with their words and tamper with the language. So the bottom line, at least from what I have been able to ascertain here, is uh, Tucker, Tucker Carlson was not up in the night. He was, in fact, being looked at. His emails were being monitored by the National Security Agency, which was interesting because some, some, some of the critics of Tucker Carlson were like, hey, dude, don't get mad at them. They're just doing their jobs. Okay, but let's, let's unpack that just a little bit further. Is doing their job spying on American citizens? Yeah, but, you know, there may have been good reason. Maybe Tucker's a, maybe he's a Russian asset, since that seems to be the catch-all that uh, is thrown out today if, if someone disagrees with you. Now, my understanding is Tucker Carlson actually was, he was looking to do an interview with uh, President Putin from Russia. And so he had sent out official emails inquiring, can we set up this interview? Now, that was portrayed as, well, we're, we're looking into his correspondence with foreign powers, making it sound like, I don't know, maybe Tucker Carlson was shopping for some fat gig, you know, being a mouthpiece for some regime that uh, despises our own. Kind of doubt it. But nonetheless... Tucker appears to have been barking up the right tree. Now the question is, whatever you think of him, whether you agree with him or whether you don't, what would it take to convince you that maybe that's a bad thing, not just for him, but for all Americans? Well, Judge Andrew Napolitano has weighed in on this. I want to share a few excerpts of what he has to say and, and how he is standing up for Tucker Carlson, but by extension pointing out the NSA spying on Tucker Carlson is an attack on all Americans, regardless of whether they agree or not. And that's what we're losing sight of. What's the real threat? What's the greater threat? That Tucker Carlson may have an unpopular opinion and say something about it. You know, he does have a pretty good audience. He, I think he may actually have the biggest cable television audience in the country. But it's not just a matter of, well, we got to stop him from saying unpopular things. It's more like, can he be intimidated into silence? Judge Napolitano says, in March 2017, I received a tip from a friend in the intelligence community that the British Government Communications Headquarters, or GCHQ, the UK's domestic and foreign spies, had been asked by the CIA to spy on candidate Donald Trump during the 2016 U.S. presidential election campaign. He elaborated that Trump's claim that someone tapped my wires was essentially true. The tip was potentially explosive, so Judge Napolitano says, I ran it past two other friends in the intelligence community, and they confirmed it. Now, Napolitano says, when I went public with this, all hell broke loose in my professional life. The British spies denied spying on Trump, who by then was president of the United States. Former Obama administration folks denied asking the Brits to do this and denied that it was done. 
Napolitano says, I was accused of fabricating this so as to make Mr. Trump look good. The prime minister of the UK had one of her deputies call my bosses at Fox News and demand that I recant what I had said or be fired. So he says, Fox asked me to lay low for 10 days, which I did. But Fox backed me when I explained the verifications conducted by my sources. Now, he says, my source spoke to British agents who confirmed that their colleagues had spied on Mr. Trump. And Napolitano says, when I went back on the air, my colleague, Bill Hemmer, asked if I stood by my revelations. And he says, I told Bill that getting beaten up in the press is the price one occasionally pays for challenging those in power. Two months later, four GCHQ agents told the Guardian newspaper of London that my revelations were true and my professional life returned to normal. Now, Judge Napolitano says, during one of my meetings with my sources, they told me that the National Security Administration, that's America's 60,000-person strong domestic spy apparatus, was listening to our conversations and monitoring our texts and emails. Now, he says, it's utterly terrifying to realize that your daily communications are being scrutinized by the government without probable cause and without a search warrant, both of which are required by the Fourth Amendment. He says it gives you pause before communicating, pause that churns the stomach, pause that is profoundly un-American. Now, he says, last week, my Fox colleague, Tucker Carlson, had a similar experience when an NSA whistleblower revealed to him that the NSA was monitoring his communications. He reported this on his Fox television show, and it's safe to say the NSA became furious. Now, Judge Napolitano says, Tucker, like me, believes the Constitution means what it says. The rights it protects are both man-made, like the right to vote, and natural, like religion, speech, the press, self-defense, travel, and privacy. The late Supreme Court Court Justice Louis Brandis called privacy the right most valued by civilized persons. And on that note, we're going to have to come back to this just the other side of our break. Now, you may consider yourself far removed from Washington, D.C., and All of the passion plays that are currently underway right there. But would it matter if you knew that government officials were still eavesdropping on you, spying on your stuff, looking into your conversations? And if not, why not? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Want to give a quick shout out to the uh, Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located at 619 South Bluff in St. George. If you're part of the huge exodus of people moving to the Intermountain West, particularly if your move is taking you to Utah, you should talk to Heather at Patriot Home Mortgage. They are an equal housing lender. Her NMLS ID is 715386. Most importantly, though, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the stability, the clout, and the decades of experience to help you get the home loan you need without delay. From VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, time is on your side only when you have your ducks in a row going in. This is what Heather and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage can do. 
Give them a call, 435-703-4522. I do have a link in my show notes that will also take you to to contact her. So we're talking about the NSA spying on Tucker Carlson. Judge Andrew Napolitano is uh, laying it down and saying, hey, the rights that the Constitution protects includes things that are man-made, like the right to vote, as well as natural rights like religion, speech, the press, self-defense, travel, and privacy. And late Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandis called privacy the right most valued by civilized persons. Now, the point here is that the CIA folks who triggered the spying on Mr. Trump and the NSA folks who spied on Mr. Carlson and on Judge Napolitano, all of those CIA folks took an oath to uphold the Constitution. So when they spy without warrants or they have foreign colleagues do it for them, they're not only subverting natural and constitutionally protected rights, but they're also committing the crimes of computer hacking and misconduct in office. See, the whole purpose of the Fourth Amendment is to be an obstacle to the government's appetite for information about us. And he reminds us that that amendment was written while the memories of the British use of general warrants, which permitted agents to search wherever they pleased and seize whatever they found, were still fresh in the minds of those who fought the revolution and who wrote the Constitution and Bill of Rights. Now, on December 4th, 1981... 20 years before 9-11, President Ronald Reagan signed Executive Order 12333. This directed the military, and by the way, the the NSA is in the military, to begin spying on Americans whose communications presented a danger to national security, and to do so without search warrants. So the NSA relies on this unconstitutional executive order for authority to engage in mass warrantless surveillance or targeted individual warrantless surveillance. Subsequent presidential orders of executive orders, rather, have been written with the mindset that the president as commander in chief can operate outside the Constitution. And this perverse rationale, says Judge Napolitano, has brought us today where we are a place that Reagan himself never could have recognized and of which he never would have approved. Today, the NSA captures all data communicated into, going out of, and within the U.S. That includes the content of all text messages and emails and phone calls, as well as financial, legal, and medical records. The list is endless. This data consumes 27 times the contents of the Library of Congress every year. Now, of course, all of this is too much for the NSA to read and digest, which is how the hijackers and killers who perpetrated 9-11 and how domestic mass murderers and their confederates have slipped past them. But when the NSA targets a specific person, as it did to Judge Napolitano in 2017 and does to Tucker Carlson today, it is sure to examine in near real time whatever it's gathered. And this should provoke outrage across the political spectrum. The NSA was after Mr. Carlson and me, says Judge Napolitano, because as libertarians defending privacy and believing that the Fourth Amendment means what it says, we have been harshly critical of it. But he says the NSA is part of the government. Can the government use its powers to chill the free speech rights of its critics? And he says the answer is, of course not. The Supreme Court has ruled many times that chilling government behavior 
that gives pause or fear to a person before speaking freely about the government is a direct violation of the natural and constitutionally protected right to the freedom of speech. So Judge Napolitano says, hey, Tucker Carlson and you and I can say whatever we want about the government, and it cannot legally or constitutionally chill or prevent that. If it could, then our rights are just empty claims. And he asks, why have we reposed the Constitution for safekeeping into the hands of those who subvert it? Ooh, that's a that's a tough one. And you know what's going to make it tough for some folks is their, their love for this country, their sense of patriotism. Sometimes gets a little wrapped around the axle under the guise of whatever the military's doing. Well, you know, it must be righteous. Look, I want to believe it, too. I want to believe that uh, only, <clears throat> you know, we're only free because of the brave soldiers who've gone out there and fought the bad guys of the world and defended our freedoms. And there was a time when I was naive enough. That's how I saw things. Now, I'm not saying that our, our military is an inherently evil organization. I think there are plenty of people who belong to the military who join for the right reasons. And out of a sense of service or a sense of duty, a sense that, look, I want to contribute to the defense of this country. But I'm going to ask you a loaded question. And, and please, don't, don't get too angry because my job here isn't to try to provoke you to anger. But I am trying to provoke you to think a little deeper. And for some people, that's going to make them angry because this may be something they don't really want to think about. If... All of that uh, military presence, that force that we're projecting, our nation's projecting, you know, around the globe. If that is for the purpose of protecting our freedoms and protecting our way of life, how is it that we have hundreds of different military installations and bases all around the world? I don't know the exact number. And then you can get into, you know, semantics debates. Is it really a base? Is it just, a, you know, an install installation? Is it, you know, an office? Yeah, the line can get blurry. But the bottom line is we have troops. We have military equipment. We have people stationed and active in many different countries around the globe. Bases all over the place. With all of that in operation. Can someone tell me why is it that we are less free here at home with every passing year? Now, that's not just hyperbole. I mean, you can measurably tally up what were the laws passed? What are the new ways that, you know, government has given itself permission to govern you with or without your consent? And no matter how generous I try to be with the math, no matter how much benefit of the doubt I try to give those who are imposing these new laws, regulations, statutes, and so forth, in every case, we end up with less freedom than we had before. And it's not such a huge noticeable amount that everybody's like, whoa, hey, you know, you took too much. It's just another little thin slice, like another little thin piece of bologna. But those slices have been coming off with a lot of consistency. And it's true, this slice right here, the latest one, isn't that much worse than the one before it or the one before it and so on. So people wonder, well, if you didn't speak up then, why are you speaking up now? I think some of the institutions 
that we give our respect and our allegiance to have been effectively captured by the powers that be and oftentimes are used as props to underscore what they're doing. I think we should be careful of that kind of thing. That doesn't mean you hate the military. It just means you're careful about where your allegiance goes. All right, we've got to take a break. So we will do that, find out what's happening news-wise here at the bottom of the hour, and we'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you were to ask me, what exactly do you stand for? Well, I would ask you to pull up a chair because I have a very lengthy explanation. takes me about two hours a day actually to do it, but uh, no. I would just say I stand for the, the primacy of individual rights. And that means at some point when, when groupthink abounds, it's time to challenge what's going on. Now, we hear a lot of lip service to free speech. And I think most of us would agree, you know, you ask nine out of ten people, hey, is free speech a good idea? And most people, if they're not feeling pressured or they haven't, you know, just encountered something they disagreed with, are going to say, yeah, 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 I think it's a great thing. But boy, once you encounter somebody who has um, speech that you don't agree with or has challenging or unorthodox ideas or even offensive ideas, because sometimes that's uh, that's. You know, that's something that goes with the territory of free speech. It can be a little more tough to be supportive of free speech in that incident. So if if you ever want to look back at uh, what are the ideas that moved the world from an okay place or even a not so good place to a better place. Do you realize most of the time it's going to be unorthodox ideas? Now, this doesn't mean, therefore, go search ye in the gutters. If there's four-letter words, why, it must be a very legitimate idea. That's not what I'm getting at. But what I am suggesting, and actually I'm going to, I'm going to share an article here from Abigail Anthony about how unorthodox, unorthodox ideas are necessary for progress. Her article is titled, In Defense of Offensive Speech, Our Progress is Linked to Ideas That Once Angered Many. Now, Abigail Anthony says, every right I have today results from movements once deemed offensive. And she says, the idea that I, a 21-year-old woman, am not solely dedicated to housework would astonish the founders of Princeton University, where she's a student. Now, it was less than 60 years ago that Princeton began admitting female students. Now, women compose 50% of its undergraduate population. Women were largely excluded from American politics until just a century ago. But today she is a student in the Department of Politics. And she says American society has progressed so greatly since its founding that I can now marry another woman or a woman who's undergone gender reassignment surgeries. Now she says the gauge of offensive evolves so drastically and rapidly that we cannot employ it as a reliable measure for appropriate conduct. 
We exercise many rights today, including the right to free expression. Because unorthodox ideas were eventually recognized by society as acceptable. Now, that doesn't immediately warrant all offensive propositions as valid, but it just proves that sometimes it is prudent to consider such ideas. Yet, she says, many of my peers and some of my professors desire to restrict free speech. And in the spirit of considering controversial opinion, she says, I'm going to afford them the courtesy of entertaining their proposition, even though they rarely extend such grace to conservative perspectives. Abigail Anthony says the hypothetical imposition of speech supervision prompts important questions, such as who is the adjudicator of offensiveness? What's the metric by which they determine something is offensive? And she says a fundamental flaw in supporting speech limitations is the assumption that the arbiters who would impose restrictions share your precise evaluation of what should be limited. Huh. And she says, I challenge those willing to relinquish free speech to ask themselves whether they're comfortable with their political opponents legislating the limits of free speech. Now, see, that's a very, very good tool to use. Would I be comfortable putting this kind of power or this kind of decision-making authority in the hands of someone to, whom, to whose ideas I am diametrically opposed? And if the answer is no, then consider somebody's probably thinking about you the very same way. Abigail Anthony says, if we formally introduce a system to monitor speech, then we surrender the full breadth of acceptable opinions to hegemonic judges whose power cannot be easily challenged and who are not subject to any immediate boundaries. There is no limit to what these speech superiors could impose. And she says, if you enable an institution or governing body to ban a word on the sole premise that it's offensive, to provide an example would be needlessly incendiary. Well, then there's no barrier for punishing whole statements. Now, she says, I've heard many insensitive comments on campus, ones that I, among others, have found derogatory. She says, presumably, others will say that they have heard insensitive comments by me. How would we formally measure the offensiveness of these comments? By the number of people offended? By the intensity of offense experienced by the listeners? See, without a consistent metric, individuals are able to file baseless claims. If limitations on speech were enacted, she says, I suspect the consequences would be varied. Would a man and a woman face the same disciplinary action for criticisms of feminism? Would a Christian, a Jew, and a Muslim be held to the same standards for comments on the Middle Eastern conflict. Would the statements Trump supporters are racist and Biden supporters are racist be similarly penalized? Would public support for either communism or fascism be equally investigated? Now, Abigail Anthony says it's terrifying that the answers to these questions are unclear. And it's more terrifying that the answer to any of these questions may be no, the punishments are unequal. See, purportedly, Princeton University is structurally racist. More than 350 faculty members signed an open letter last July calling upon the university to take immediate concrete and material steps to openly and publicly acknowledge the way that anti-black racism and racism of any stripe continue to thrive on its campus. Now, if the institution enabled and even upheld racism, 
then why would one dare give administrators who run that institution power over speech? Surely such a destructive tool would be another weapon against minorities. But she also points out here that free speech controversies are not exclusive to Princeton. There is a national debate on critical race theory and its validity in the classroom. Proponents argue that CRT provides necessary historical context on racial relations. Opponents insist it is anti-American indoctrination and have sought to ban it from classrooms. Now, the apparent tension between free speech and inclusivity initiatives prompted notable professors, including Princeton affiliates, to found the Academic Freedom Alliance, which is dedicated to promoting and defending academic freedom. In only a few months, the organization has accumulated impressive victories. However, she says we cannot expect legal wins, brief university statements, and canceled investigations to immediately translate to campus culture and classroom settings. So she says we need to actively promote diversity. Now listen, she's talking intellectual diversity among students, faculty, and administrators by encouraging respectful debate between ideological counterparts. The current anti-racism movement must fight against oppression, but it cannot rescind the rights that were intensely fought for, including free speech. Abigail Anthony says the movement to ban offensive rhetoric fails to acknowledge the full scope of free expression. It does not protect ideas, but rather enables them to be challenged. Now, just to be clear, she says we should not strive to be offensive. That would be cruel and disrespectful. So she says, instead, I am arguing that we should not legislate offensiveness and that any attempts to do so outside the narrowest exceptions, such as defamation and perjury, will prove incoherent and illogical. Abigail Anthony says, It is through intellectual debate, which depends on free speech, that the scope of human rights continues to broaden. After all, I'm able to express these thoughts only because our society eventually decided that it was no longer offensive for women to be educated. I mean, for a 21-year-old student, I'd say she's got her head on pretty straight. Maybe it's us older folks with, uh, you know, (laughs) our our minds firmly made up and uh, nobody's going to change my mind. Maybe we're the ones who struggle with this. When you hear an idea that you don't agree with, whether it's an Olympic, uh, you know, an Olympic qualifier turning her back on the American flag or, you know, somebody else making the statement, that American flag to me says nothing but racism. You don't have to rise to the occasion of, I'm going to have a fight with that person. What's needed is more free speech, not less free speech. With the understanding that the better ideas will, like cream, rise to the top and displace the bad ideas. The question is, do we have enough good ideas to share? All right, we've got to put the brakes on here. We've got one more segment of the show coming up. Got a couple of interesting things to share with you, including some of the most terrifying realizations about human nature that we have learned in the last year and a half. This is from Tom Woods, and it is really, really good. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I always look for something that's uh, kind of thought-provoking, something that will stick in your brain. I think I've got a winner here. I don't spend a, a lot of time on Twitter. Let me put this another way. What time I spend on Twitter is minimal because it can be Twitter can be kind of a crazy place. Every so often on Twitter, though, I see a distillation of knowledge and somebody just has a way of putting something succinctly and clearly. And I think it's worth sharing. And there's there's a personality on there that I have been following now for a little bit. It's a UK based rapper by the name of Zuby, Z-U-B-Y. And it's a list here of 20 things Zuby has learned or had confirmed about humanity during the pandemic. I just wanted to share these with you real quick because I think this rings true. Number one, most people would rather be in the majority than right. That seems right, right? You know, being right can be lonely. I'd take the safety of the crowd. Number two, at least 20% of the population has strong authoritarian tendencies, which will emerge under the right conditions. Number three, fear of death is only rivaled by the fear of social disapproval. And Zuby suggests the latter could be stronger. Number four, propaganda is just as effective in the modern day as it was 100 years ago. Access to limitless information has not made the average person any wiser. Number five, anything and everything can and will be politicized by the media, government, and those who trust them. Number six, many politicians and large corporations will gladly sacrifice human lives if it is conducive to their political and financial aspirations. Number seven, most people believe the government acts in the best interests of the people, even many people who are vocal critics of the government. Number eight, once they have made up their mind, most people would rather commit to being wrong than to admit they were wrong. Humans can be trained. This is number nine. Humans can be trained and conditioned quickly and relatively easily to significantly alter their behaviors for better or worse. Number 10, when sufficiently frightened, most people will not only accept authoritarianism, but demand it. Number 11, people who are dismissed as conspiracy theorists are often well-researched and simply ahead of the, of the mainstream narrative. Number 12, most people value safety and security more than freedom and liberty, even if said safety is merely an illusion. Number 13, Zuby says hedonic adaptation occurs in both directions. And once inertia sets in, it's difficult to get people back to normal. I got to make a note to myself and Google the word hedonic to get a good definition. Number 14, a significant percentage of people thoroughly enjoy being subjugated. Presumably they'll pay good money for it. Number 15, the science has evolved into a pseudo uh, secular pseudo-religion for millions in the West, and this religion has little to do with science itself. Number 16, most people care more about looking like they're doing the right thing rather than actually doing the right thing. Number 17, politics, the media, science, and healthcare industries are all corrupt to varying degrees. Scientists and doctors can be bought as easily as politicians. Number 18, if you make people comfortable enough, they will not revolt. You can keep millions docile as you strip their rights by giving them money, food, and entertainment. 
just two more here. Modern people, this is number 19, modern people are overly complacent and lack vigilance when it comes to defending their own freedoms from government overreach. And number 20, it's easier to fool a person than to convince them that they have been fooled. 20 things I've learned or had confirmed about humanity during the pandemic. This is from a British rapper by the name of Zuby. That's some pretty on-target stuff. Definitely thought that was worth sharing. So have you heard about the great resignation of 2021? I mean, we have hit a lot of landmark things in the last year and a half, but the great resignation of 2021, it's underway. And if you don't know what it is, I'm going to share with you some excerpts from an article here from Hannah Cox from the Foundation for Economic Education, who says, if you don't spend your days on TikTok or Reddit, you may be blissfully unaware of a growing movement urging people to quit their jobs en masse this fall. It's called the Great Resignation of 2021. And for businesses already struggling to attract workers back to the office, she says it could spell very bad news. The social media market trend coincides with broader disruptions in the labor market. Monster, a global employment website, recently reported 95% of employees are considering changing jobs. This is on top of the 4 million people who already followed through and resigned in April. So the country's labor market's in a precarious position. The policies of the pandemic spurred the sharpest economic contraction in U.S. history. Millions lost their jobs and are still out of work, yet businesses have been unable to fill their open positions. On top of all this, reports indicate employers may soon face more disruption from what's being described as the Great Resignation, as millions of workers prepare to say, I quit. According to TikTok, TikTok user Katie Yao Yao, a recruiter with over 300,000 followers on the platform, as many as one in four employees are planning to leave their job this fall. Now, these employees, she says, intend to spend the summer months using their vacation days and enjoying the benefits of full-time employment before they jump ship and turn in their notice in the autumn. Daniel Zhao, a labor economist with the employment website Glassdoor, said, we haven't seen anything quite like the situation we have today. Why is this happening? Well, there's a multitude of reasons. Large numbers of Americans transitioned to working from home last year. Now that they've enjoyed the quality of life increase that remote work brings, they're unwilling to return to the monotony of a desk job. Lots of managers have announced plans to bring employees back to the office this fall, and it seems many people are simply unwilling to do so. And given the plethora of open jobs at the moment, the best workers have their pick of employment. Other workers used their downtime during the pandemic to develop new skills or passions. Now they want to find roles that allow them to incorporate those interests into their day-to-day lives. Some are seeking roles that require less of their time out of a desire to allocate more time to their families or children. And then there are those who simply just don't want to work. Jeremy Golombuski is one example of a worker who's already taken the plunge. The 26-year veteran of the restaurant industry realized just how much of his children's childhood he was missing while he was furloughed over the pandemic. So he decided it was no longer acceptable to spend so much time away from them and quit his job in search of a more steady schedule and a 40-hour work week. Angel Perkins is another case in point. She resigned her role as a recruiter during the pandemic over health concerns. And in the meantime, she launched an online jewelry business. She quickly replaced her income and found the financial and time freedom her old work would not afford. 
So the reality here is that it's an employee's market. There's never been a better time for people to job hunt. The Labor Department recently reported 9.3 million job openings. There are hiring signs everywhere you look. Taking that into consideration, Hannah Cox says it makes sense that workers might be experiencing more freedom and confidence in the job market than usual, leading them to make bold career moves they would be less likely to take under other circumstances. And there's nothing wrong with that. Good employees should seek the greatest quality of life, highest pay, and ability to spend their time on work they find meaningful. Those are strong incentives in a free market that encourage a good work ethic, innovation, and efficiency. But she says what this means is that employers will have to compete with attractive incentives to earn the placement of the best employees or even to fill openings in general. Much of this can be seen in a favorable light. I mean, competition's a good thing. Market incentives that encourage employers to offer better working arrangements can create a better quality of life for all and higher productivity in general. However, trends like the Great Resignation are far from being fueled by market incentives and demands alone. What's fueling them are the repercussion of of bad big government policies that have severely tampered with the market for the past year. And this includes things like the Fed, continue, the federal government rather, continuing to send an increased amount of unemployment benefits to workers, even as the businesses they shut down struggle to open back up. Workers are responding to this perverse incentive in entirely predictable ways, choosing to stay home or work less, often for more pay than they were able to earn in the workforce for an extended period of time. See, central planners were warned that these kinds of problems would result from their policies, but they persisted anyway. And as a result, it's likely we will all continue to see supply shortages and an increase in the price of goods and services. So, not exactly the end of the world, but something that you might want to be prepared for, nonetheless. Consider yourself warned and a little bit wiser. Thanks again for joining us today. Please check out the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. That's for people who want to take a little bit deeper dive into any of the topics discussed here. These are well-researched topics. They're well-sourced. Lots of links within the articles provided as well. You're not going to know everything, but you will be smarter at the end of your quest. This is The Brian Hyde Show.